Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Oh, our next guest is my personal hero. She is the world leader in eating disorders. She's a clinician, an author, and the founder of Montanito and director of several treatment programs. In her early 20s, Carolyn recovered from anorexia, earned two masters, and began her journey as a psychotherapist and eating disorder expert. She literally had a dream in the 1980s of creating an eating disorder program in a home. The rest is history. She's also a world-renowned speaker, wife, activist, motivator, and brilliant psychotherapist. P.S. She personally saved my life. Welcome, Carolyn. Well, thank you for that. You saved your own life. I was just a guide, but thank you very much for that introduction. I'm happy to be here. I love that. That That's great. That's perfect. Yeah, it's great to meet you, Carolyn. I've heard so many wonderful things about you. And thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited, actually. <laughs> Excellent. We know how you accomplished who you are now, but who were you then in the early years? Tell us a little bit about what that journey was like for you. Well, let me ask you a question about that. You mean when I started my career or even before no, no. that? I'm taking you back. All the way back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yes. Well, okay. Well, I happen to be one of those people, you know, in the in the 1970s that went on a diet, you know, this is the time of Twiggy and all that. And uh, I'm definitely dating myself. Anyway, you know, all my other girlfriends and I went on a diet and, and me, because of my temperament, which we can talk about a little bit, I developed anorexia nervosa. And not much was known about it at the time, really. There really wasn't. But the long story short, I actually got over it. I got better. And I went to school to become a teacher started teaching high school and became a high school counselor. And at my high school, the principal of my high school said, oh, there's this girl who, who lives in our city who has that thing you had. Would you be willing to see her? And I saw her and it was a weird like mind meld. I felt like I, you know, I just understood. I asked her questions that other people weren't asking she got better. And then someone referred me someone else and someone referred me someone else. And pretty soon, and at the same time, I was studying to become a therapist. So I transferred from just being a school counselor into being a therapist. People started referring people to me. And this was before Karen Carpenter, um, you know, died. I got my license in 1979. But when I was struggling with an eating disorder, I was also taking psychology classes. And I knew there was a concept inside of me that I knew I had a healthy self. I was a smart girl, you know, I was making good grades. I also knew I'd been hijacked by this other part of myself. And part of my getting better was having conversations with me. And so that's a big part of what I do. I help people strengthen their healthy self when it's been hijacked by an eating disorder. 
That's so interesting. And, and I guess I want to dig into that a little bit more and just get really basic. What is an eating disorder and how does one get an eating disorder? Because, you know, that idea of hijacked by this part of yourself, is it just laying dormant and something triggers this to activate it? Just break that down a little bit. Well, it's interesting because it's like asking anything, you know, how does someone get depression or whatever? And there's so many routes, but I can say in general, the way the field looks at this now is genes load the gun and environment pulls the trigger. So there are genetic predispositions, vulnerabilities, if you will, that causes somebody to be more likely to develop an eating disorder, but there are different eating disorders. So for example, for me, the genetic vulnerability is kind of a perfectionistic personality, kind of type A, kind of control freak, a little bit obsessive, anxious. And so when all my friends and I went on a diet, I'm the one who took it to the extreme, you know? So I always make a joke that in high school, I got straight A's and anorexia. So the the key here, what's really important here is that for a while, when the researchers started studying the genetics of eating disorders and they came up with, oh yeah, there are these traits people with anorexia have, for example, we'll talk about the other ones in a minute. And they would say, you know, they're perfectionistic and try to work on that or work on the anxiety. And it made it seem like you were never going to get better. So people were all of a sudden talking about it, like you'd always be recovering. That was distressing to me because when I saw those things, I thought, At this point, I don't think of myself as being perfectionistic, but I do think of myself as being detail oriented, you know, or I don't think of myself as being anxious. I think of myself as high energy. And I realized what I need to do with clients, patients is help them look at their traits that they could use. I call it taking your traits from the darkness to the light. So you can have, if you have a perfectionistic genetic predisposition, what are you going to do with that? I knew that I need to channel that in a way away from counting calories and fat grams and weighing myself every day and put that to doing things like, you know, doing the best slideshow or writing the the book, the best way I could write the book in terms of the books that that I've written about eating disorders. You know, there are ways we can channel our traits for good or bad. And I think most people can relate to that once they start thinking about that for themselves, you know? You don't look at it as being in a lifelong recovery. No, no. So I started treating people as a therapist and people were sending people to me. And then I started hearing people coming in and saying, well, I know I'll always have this, you know, I've been to a 12 step meeting. I'll always be in recovery or I'll always be recovering. And one of the first steps is, you know, I admit I'm powerless over food and that just threw me back. And so I learned I'm not against the 12 steps. I think it makes sense for other things that you can get rid of like chemical dependency. You can say, I can never have a drink because I'm one of those people and I just have to get it out of my life. But it never made sense to me to do it with food. We have to have food. And I started shaping my philosophy around the idea that you're not powerless over food. Human beings are very powerful. And what we have to do is look at your traits and figure out how can you use them to serve your highest good, you know? When you compare it to that, that makes sense. It is a different perception. I understand that. And, you know, I I recovered. It it, it just felt like it was gone. And uh, so I started seeing people and treating them as if they could be recovered. And 
holding up, this is where we're going. You're going to get to a, a place where it's a thing of the past. You're not thinking about it. You're not doing it one day at a time. And that's a very strong part of my philosophy is that people can be recovered. And now there's thousands of people. I've been doing this for over 40 years and there's still 12-step programs for eating disorders. But I, I still think most people have come around to this idea that you can be recovered from an eating disorder. We have some hangover in terms yeah. of the genetic work that makes people think, oh, well, you always have those genes, mm -hmm. but it's different. You know, you can still have the, the genetic predisposition. And like I said, just be applying it in a different way. So you no longer meet the criteria for eating disorder. And I understand that you no longer meet the criteria, but can you still have the behavior? Can you still have some of the characteristics that I do don't think so? Oh, that's I don't think so. And I, that's a really good question because the criteria, you know, could be the DSM criteria. You can still be doing a lot and <laughs> not meet the DSM criteria. Exactly. So for me, I say you no longer will make an eating disorder. You won't use eating disorder behaviors to cope with or try to deal with problems. And you put weight and shape in its proper perspective in your life. You know, to be recovered, you no longer will betray your soul. You know, I have it written out. I could probably look it up and read it, but it, it encompasses things other than just not meeting the criteria, because I think that's a stage where people get. And I think a lot of treatment centers and uh, family members think, oh, you know, like someone with bulimia, you're not purging anymore. So you're well, as long as you have those thoughts you know, I hate my body. I don't like living like this. I wish I could get rid of the food and you're white knuckling it to me. That's not being recovered. And I think what happens to a lot of people is they get to that point and they think, oh man, this is my life. I'm going to have to suffer with, you know, white knuckling it for the rest of my life. If that's being recovered, it's too hard and I can't do it. So that's a phase of treatment that I really prepare when I'm training therapists and or coaches, where I really train them to predict that phase, to talk about it, to say, oh, no, it gets way better. It gets to the point where you don't really even have the thoughts or feelings anymore. The last thing I can think about is wanting to go on a diet and lose weight or even step on a scale for that matter. So, yeah, I think it really can be gone. That's so interesting. And so the idea of even managing food intake, you see that as something that can be that can change doesn't have to exist. Yeah, I think here, human beings are very, you know, we have neuroplasticity. The inertia to get it changed at first is hard because you're creating these new grooves in your brain. And it's very easy once we've done something for a while to have that habitual pattern. So first is getting the person to get that inertia to change it. and But once you change that pattern enough, that becomes your new pattern. So I just, the resiliency of humans is so big, so strong. But if we don't expect that from people, and this is what gets me all worked up, if we lead them to believe that this is as good as you'll do managing the illness, then a lot of people have accepted that and have stopped there. You know, if they're living a happy, productive life, it's not, it's not like I'm trying to be dismissive of that. Mm -hmm. I just know when I'm treating somebody, I want them to know it can be gone. It can be like, you just wonder, how did I ever even do that? Okay. Great to hear your perspective. It's enlightening. So the general public typically associates eating disorders, particularly anorexia and bulimia, with you know young white girls. 
Um, yeah. That's the stereotype. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's a big mistake. You know, this came from the early research that was done and some of it was done in, oh, let's find a target sample, you know, in this private school or things like that. It also came because when is it noticed? When is it diagnosed? Same thing with men. It's these marginalized populations didn't have the resources or access to care. There were typically differences, and I, I don't know where this stacks up now, but there were differences in the diagnosis. For example, more people in the Black communities would have bulimia and binge eating versus anorexia. But bulimia same. and binge eating are really difficult to treat and important eating disorder illnesses as well. And all this focus was on anorexia, you know? It's the same. It hasn't changed. It's still the same. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, so- and, and same thing as men. I mean, there's some data where a male can go into a doctor's office and present exactly the same symptoms using exactly the same words as a female and the male not be diagnosed with an eating disorder. And I think this also happened in other, you know, marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you another part of that question because you brought it up is this idea that capitalism impacts everything in our lives, as does racism in marginalized communities' lives, or in particular, people of color's lives. How does that impact treatment and their recovery for women, specifically for women? I think that you have to take different issues. You know, right now, this is a big topic in the field, and it is all across the board. And it's not just from the way that we have our assessments, but it's also do you get to see, if you're a Black woman going into treatment, do you get to see anybody else in there who's dealt with the issues you've dealt with? Do you see anybody in positions like a therapist or people who are in the top echelons and the owners of these treatment centers? And the field is having its growing pains with that right now, myself included. When the Black Lives Matter, really the big movement was happening, you know, I'm watching TV and I'm thinking about it. And of course, the first thing I think is, you know, I'm supporting them. I put a sign in front of my house. I'm not racist. But then I had to go back and look and I started looking at, okay, I have coaches. Why don't I have any black coaches? And I would say, well, none of them signed up. I could just leave it at that. But I had to say to myself, why haven't they signed up? Is it that there's not as many of them that even have that little bit of extra money to take the course? So honestly, I put out a thing. I did it with Project Teal and put out a thing and gave two scholarships. But it was weird. I have to tell you, being someone like me and trying to learn, you bumble around because I put something out, you know, that I'm going to offer black scholarships. And the first email I got was a really nice one. And the second email was from someone saying, you know, that feels racist and we don't need your help. <laughs> you know, so we try. I mean, I, I can only speak for myself. I, I realized that if I'm trying to offer this coaching service, meaning that I'm training people to be coaches, eating disorder coaches, like there are sober coaches, let's just say that. Right. And I notice in my own demographics that I don't have any, I thought who, who best to change it but me. So that's what I'm doing right now. And we'll see what comes of it. But I think the field has to do that also. And I think some yeah. boards are beginning to get that, you know, there were a lot of boards, eating disorder boards that just were not that diverse. And, and they're working on it right now. They're hearing about it and they're working on it. But also you know, in treatment, you know, you have to make sure that you do culturally sensitive treatment. Uh, for example, 
uh, one of the studies about Asian clients is that they were, and this I think you'll find interesting, they were looking at the goals for why they were restricting their food or throwing up their food. They scored a lot higher on the desire to be in control rather than the desire to lose weight. And that makes sense when you look at it culturally, you know? So I think we have to be sensitive to those things and we have to do things a little different in the treatment when you're dealing with people like, for example, again, in Asian cultures, it was, they were way less likely to want to do family work because you do not discuss those issues in or outside of the family. Right. So I think we have a bit of, it's going on right now. I mean, it's been going on slowly, but I think there's a tipping point happening in the field. You know, you bring up so many great points when it comes to how, how does this get done? How do you begin to integrate and, and use a multicultural lens for treatment? And I think one of the things is languaging in terms of wanting to offer scholarships. Maybe it's reparations. That's the yeah, language. That okay, good point. <laughs> makes it different, right? Nobody wants yeah. white saviors. If you're trying to offer equity, that's a different conversation. Yeah. And so I think yeah. that makes the difference. That that makes a difference. It's the language. That's yeah. why I said I'm still learning. I should have yes. talked to you before I sent yes. out my thing because you know I consulted with people and said, look at what I'm sending out, and it changed probably 20 times. But yes. you know, I agree. That makes sense to me. I didn't yes. even think about that one. Well, that's a lot of what I do for people is kind yeah. of help them to understand what the difference is and how to make this a conversation that's comfortable instead of talking at marginalized communities and telling us what we need, talking yeah. to us about how to make this more user friendly. And and you mentioned the Japanese community, and I just want to throw in an example from the black community, you know, just like mental health, you know, the psychologist, this whole Eurocentric lens about what makes an eating disorder. And, you know, we already feel oppressed about our bodies and how, you know, yeah. the white dominant culture use our body. So now we're going to have you tell us when when we have an eating disorder, when we don't have an eating disorder, we're going to trust that when systems have never worked in our favor. So it's complicated. And I agree with you very much. And, you know, diagnostic criteria, as you already alluded to in the beginning, I mean, really, it's you look at people and you say, what's interfering with your life? What would you like to do with food and your body that you haven't been able to do? What would you like to stop doing that you haven't been able to stop doing? And to me, those are way more important than what diagnostic criteria you fit in, you know? I think that's so helpful for people to hear. I think that's really, really important because we use that for any kind of treatment. You know, how is it impeding your life? Is it working for you or against you? That's where you have to begin. It's not how much you weigh or, you know, how thin you are. Is it impeding your life, the quality of your life? Oh, and you know, the weighing thing, don't even get me started because (laughs) we talk about bone density and the differences in bones between Caucasian, you know, black individuals and Asian individuals. So you can't use, you can't say this number and they're still doing it in treatment centers where they go, okay, this is how tall you are. This is what you should weigh. It's like drives me crazy. You know, I've had a doctor tell me that for sure. That, you know, I'd be much better at this weight that's impossible for me to get to. <laughs> yeah, that you would be sick if you tried to get to it. Yes, you know? right. right. Yeah. So I want to shift to trauma, the idea of trauma, including racial trauma. Okay. You know, the potential catalyst to inform an eating disorder in terms of through the trauma lens. You know, how, how, is, how is that triggering for an eating disorder? How, like, I just want people to understand it's all connected, essentially. And I want to hear it from your perspective. Well, so much of it. Let me start from treatment and back up. To me... So much of it is about creating safety because the one fundamental thing that happens in trauma is you lose your ability 
to feel safe, safe in your body, safe in a space, safe with other people. And, and it's on a continuum, of course. So to me, the very first thing you have to do is make a connection, help know what makes this individual feel safe and work at it for a while. You can't just start going in and saying, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to stop doing this. You're going to start doing this. And especially with eating disorder treatment, we have this way of thinking that we know better. We're going to tell the, you have to give up those laxatives, you know, for me to keep seeing you just crazy statements that I've heard, you know, and there's a lot of Again, there's neuroscience stuff that now I've learned that helped back it up that goes from the attachment system to the vagal nerve system, but creating safety for a person that can feel like they can actually come in and even tell you what's happening to them. So taking away their symptoms might actually make them feel a lot less safe. And then there can be decompensation. So as a therapist, you always have to respect how is the symptom keeping them from fragmenting? How is it helping them? How is it serving a purpose? Which is why I always start out by saying, I'm not here to take this away from you. In fact, I don't even think I can do that and I don't want to do that. I'm here to take the part of you, what I call the healthy self, grow that, to strengthen it, to make that part stronger. And then you heal yourself. You will decide when you can stop that behavior. You know, it's interesting about trauma people and people with eating disorders is that they both are really good about taking care of somebody else. They can say what this person needs, which is why I love doing group, because you can say you can help the person sitting right next to you in group, but it's really difficult to turn back that back on yourself and apply it to yourself. So sometimes when people are really stuck, I'm working with them on what would you say to your best friend if she said the same thing? What would you say to your niece? What would you say to this child? It works both in trauma and in eating disorders, but there's something called trauma bonding where there can be an experience like a male I treated who had bulimia, who had an experience at his 16th birthday where his mom, and you can imagine a 16 year old boy, all these guys are over for his birthday. He did something that got his mother very upset and she slapped him across the face in front of all of his friends. The party was over. They all left. He ate the whole birthday cake. That's a bit of a trauma bonding where that experience, he did it to numb out. He did it to distract, to self-soothe. That got tied with whenever he had an experience that he wanted to self-soothe and distract from. So once you get to the trust aspect, then you can find out if there's any kind of trauma bonding things that happen with food. And interestingly enough, a lot of times there are. And sometimes it isn't a specific trauma bonding thing. It's more of a, this is the way I feel safe. Like people sometimes feel like if I just, it goes both ways. If I get in a larger body, maybe I won't be attractive. Sometimes it goes the other way. If I'm totally in control and have this small body, maybe I won't be noticed. So it can really go all over the map. Yeah, you touched on so many things there, and I, I don't want to take up more time. <laughs> I'm a big I'm, I'm chomping at the bit over here. I'm like, oh, it's taking me here and there and the other place. So we'll okay. have to have. I'll try to take more pauses. <laughs> no, no, not at all. It's just no. so interesting. It's no. got me thinking. I mean, the one thing I'll say, and then Susie, I'm going to throw it to you, is 
you know, when you talk about safety, right? So the idea of people of color, people from marginalized communities, people who experience systems of racism yes. and oppression and dysfunction, feeling safe and environments right. that have been created by people who look like the people who oppress them, it feels impossible. You, you have to be really careful in helping someone assess and, and not being a judge at all of what makes one person feel safe and not the other. Right. But I admit it is hard if someone feels unsafe, even if someone was attacked and you don't want to tell them, well, hey, it's safe out there. Right. And so when you're talking about when you, went, for example, black community has to worry about, I don't worry about being pulled over by a police officer, but they do. So there are ways that you have to talk to them about how do you regulate your affect? How do you regulate your emotional system when things like that happen? And work within the best parameters you can, because yeah. I don't know what else to do. I'm not yeah. going to throw up my hands and say, you know, you're screwed, but I do have to recognize that there are a lot of things that contribute to people not feeling safe. And it doesn't have to be, mostly when people think of trauma, they think of sexual abuse or a major accident or something like that. Trauma can come from even being neglected, you know, right. and growing up. So you really have to find out how it lives with them now, not spend the whole time on the past either going back. Cause that's just re-traumatizes a person. Right. You need to know the story, but you need to be able to then focus on how it's living in their bodies now. So sometimes that comes with just helping people regulate their affect. Being traumatized, let me see if I can say this and then I'll pause, I promise, is when you can't integrate the affect of an experience, okay? So you're constantly overwhelmed and that could be having high cortisol levels shoot up because you're always on guard. And so one of the things that's really important is learning how you can regulate that given where you are, given the system that you're in. It's a little bit like working with PTSD vets. I can't help that helicopters are going to fly over and right. I can't help that they spent time in the war, but I can help them learn how to regulate their affect. And sometimes people do that with food. And here we have this crossover with trauma and eating disorders. I think, you know, the one thing that I want to emphasize that you said, I think is so important is accepting that you can't change it for the person. I think it's really unhealthy yeah. when clinicians try to come in and say, we can make this go away as opposed to working within a person's reality. So that's, I really appreciate that you emphasize that. Yeah. Go ahead, Susie, take it over. Oh, well, I'm having a bit of an emotional, much more of an emotional experience than I actually thought that I would. And for everyone out there that doesn't know, I spent eight months of my life in Carolyn's treatment center. So I'm recovered and I'm lucky enough to be able to be a clinician as well now. And so first of all, Carolyn, I wanna thank you because you are the one that gave me life and changed my life. So I'm going to get choked up. I've also read all of your books verbatim. In fact, this beaten up little thing right here is just, it's my Bible. And, what is, and which book is, oh, is that the eight keys? It's the eight keys. Yeah. That it's just, you know, with the post-its, the whole thing. <laughs> one of the things I want to talk about before I ask my first like real question is about the healthy and the unhealthy voice. Because when I was in treatment, I couldn't even wrap my head around that concept. You say yeah. that the healthy voice is up here when you first start and the unhealthy voice is up here. The yeah. healthy voice is here. And the entire eight months I was in treatment, I kept saying, I don't have an unhealthy voice. I don't have an unhealthy voice. I know. 
<laughs> you remember. I know. Yeah, yeah, no. I know. Well, let me just say, you're not the typical person that I treated because remember, I had to go into groups and tell people, everyone was really mad at you because you wouldn't admit, right? Right. Because you came in and you made a realization really early on and this is what I call your healthy self. What your healthy self did know is, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to live like this anymore. And you would say it in group and people would look at you like this, you know, like when you look at a dog who, you know, or I mean, when you say something to a dog and they yeah, don't know yeah. what you're saying, you know, right. because everyone felt like that couldn't possibly be true and you must be lying. Right. And what I said to people is, and this is the thing about not assuming anything as a clinician, even, and remember I said, look, even though I've not seen this before, it doesn't mean it's not true. And we have to, all what we have to do is watch what happens and see what happens with the behaviors until we have some reason to believe it's not true. Let's take it on face value because you kind of had to be, you just couldn't even articulate the downside. Look, very few people with anorexia would say to me, okay, raise my calories. I'm ready to gain more weight. That's just not seen in the field. But for some reason, Susie, you had a very strong force of will, healthy self, whatever you want to call it, that was ready to change and you were going to do what was ready to change. So in a way, you already had flipped that switch. That's why. That's why that was hard for you, you know? Thank you for that. I, I just want to give people out there, I want them to know that it doesn't matter how old you are. Because I was also told that I was over 40 and that women over 40 would never recover. So thank you for breaking those myths. I want to talk to you about the LGBTQIA plus community. Okay. What does treatment look like when you're working with that community? How is that different? It's a, it's, a, it's a little bit the same thing that I was talking about. But here's what I think in terms of treatment. I mean, there's a difference between treatment centers and individual treatment. Do you want me to talk about both or what? Well, what? I, I think that you should, because I think that in a treatment center, all of a sudden, everyone's trying to attain that level of perfection. You're just trying to win. That's one of the problems with treatment centers, in my opinion, is that it's just a different set of goals. And well, so here's what's really, really important. You have got to be individualized at a treatment center and is what's driving me crazy about treatment centers right now. Because if you don't, what you get is people coming into treatment, they're following the eating disorder rules, which you were doing, you were definitely doing that. Mm -hmm. You needed somebody, you had the will, but you still needed somebody to start showing you. But, but anyway, let's go back to the, so you don't want someone to come into a treatment center with eating disorder rules. They're following these eating disorder rules. I can't eat after eight o'clock at night. If I eat something that I consider fattening, I have to throw it up. I can't weigh over two digits, whatever the rules are. And then you got treatment rules you have to follow. Right. And you follow the treatment rules and maybe you do well, but what happens when you discharge? Where's the internal compass? Where is the guiding light? The goal should be to help people find their own. What are your rules? What are your values? How are you accomplishing it? What's getting in your way? And I think it's a problem in the field. And I am seeing people who go into treatment and then they come out and they're totally lost because now they don't have the treatment center rules and nobody reinforcing. You can't just cure someone by 
getting compliance for a few weeks or a few months. There has to be an internal shift. So whether it's in a treatment center or it's an individual, you have to do that thing where you go into how, what does this do for the person? So I always ask, and you know, Susie, I ask this, what are all the good reasons you have your eating disorder? Because, and they're not used to people asking them that. They're used to people saying it's doing this and this and this that's bad for you. But you're not stupid. Mm-hmm. You have this for a reason. What are all the good reasons you have it? And help someone figure out what it's doing for them. And then help them figure out how can there another part of you do that same thing for you without all these strings attached, without all the consequences. So. I love that. It's going to be different. The thing that we have to keep in mind for the LGBTQ and transgender especially is we have to be careful about talking about their bodies in a way like being comfortable with your body when they may already have had these shifts where they're trying to be comfortable with their body in a whole nother level beyond weight and shape. And we have to accept that as part of the picture and how they see it and how they see the food interacting. Because ultimately what I want someone to do is I want to respect and hold sacred, valuable, all your issues and your wounds and whatever. What I want to help you do is extract dealing with food to try and help that in whatever way you're seeing it as a helpful. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, getting them to distance or um, move the food part away from how they're coping. You're still left with all this stuff. It's not over now. It's just that now I'm not going to use this to cope. So I may have put the eating disorder at bay while I can work on these things that allow that to creep in and make me feel like it was helpful. Almost everybody you interview about an eating disorder in the beginning it was helpful for them. It was numbing. It was distracting. They lost weight and got a lot of attention. What, what, whatever it was, oh, they got out their anger by purging, whatever it was, people can usually come up with, here are the reasons that it was helpful. And then, I mean, for me, I go, well, see how smart you were, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and it may be really helpful like a heroin addict can say how dreamy it is being on heroin, but there are a lot of strings attached. So what if we find other ways that are helpful that aren't also detrimental at the same time, you know, and that's what I start looking for. And I always say, and you don't have to be recovered. It's not my goal. I don't start off with, okay, here's the goal. Here's what we're going to do. No, I know you don't. No, I know you don't. It really has to be like, I will go, you don't want to be recovered I, that's okay with me. In fact, you know me, I'll just say, I I love you anyway, as a human being on the planet, I don't get to say what you should do. You know, I've actually heard you say that I can remember visually sitting outside on the terrace and a woman was sitting, a young woman was, didn't want, she ended up recovering, but you said, fine, it's okay. You don't need to. And that actually, go ahead. Well, because I think I think what happens when you try to push people and they have something that they're they're protective of, they'll go underground with it. And then and then you're not even community. I have to say, I have to befriend both parts. You know what I mean? Yes. I I have to go, 
what's all that doing there? And how did it help you? Oh, I get it. I think there might, are you interested in seeing other ways? It's like holding up a mirror and saying, here's what I see. First of all, do you see that too? And then a most obvious question, which, which a lot of clinicians I think miss is, and would you like to change that? Yes. Because some people will start with, you know, I don't think so. And then I go, okay, let's talk about all the reasons why not. Right. It, generally and honestly, when you do that with people, I think we have a resilience in us as human beings. And I think we like to go towards, you know, health and happiness. And it's really about getting a lot of the obstacles out of the way. And I don't want to be one of the obstacles, which is trying to drag somebody there, you know? Right. right. Carolyn, you alluded to this earlier, but I'm going to combine a couple questions. So first of all, why does getting better feel so bad? And in addition to that, one of the things you talked about is treatment center culture. One of the things that Montanito, Montanito did beautifully that a lot of treatment centers don't do is what happens when you get home and your clothes don't fit and you can't just walk down the hall into group or find your therapist. So I'm combining those. Why does it feel so bad? And it's not like this. It's like this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first part, why does it feel so bad? You know, generally, when you have something that is serving a purpose for you and is making you feel protected or less overwhelmed by uh, affect, like I was talking about earlier, or any of those things, or you feel like in anorexia for say, let's say you feel like, oh, I'm so successful because I've lost this weight and I really set out to lose weight, but then your brain gets hijacked. You don't even see yourself as thin anymore, but you still, that you have a fear of gaining weight or you have bulimia and you feel like, oh, if I eat an ice cream, it's almost like over time you've trained yourself, eat an ice cream, throw up, it's automatic. So when you break any of those patterns, it always feels bad at first. It always feels bad. You're taking away the coping mechanism, but you're also changing. People start identifying, oh, I'm a person who, you know, weighs under a hundred pounds, or I'm a person who doesn't eat dinner after eight o'clock or whatever. And you begin to concretize that into an identity. So it always feels bad when you shift that. If you go to a therapist for marriage counseling and your marriage starts to get better, that feels better. If you go to a therapist for depression and all of a sudden your depression starts to lift and you can go places, you feel better. But with an eating disorder, I always warn people in the beginning, this is going to feel bad because for example, if I work with someone with bulimia and I say, if you eat that cake and you feel like purging, I want you to sit with it. I want you to sit with it. I want you to write me, text me, have a dialogue between the part of you that wants to get rid of it and the part of you that wants to not have bulimia anymore. That feels bad to, to sit through that because what you, what you want to think is, I'll just get rid of it this time and tomorrow I won't do it again. Right. I tell people, the more you do that, the more you create that neural pathway that says, when I eat cake, I purge it. So you've got to change that. And that feels bad to change that. So you say it's all about, or it's not about the food, but it's all about the food. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because when I was writing the eight keys, you know, I wanted to write Look, it's not about the food in terms of it's a 12 step. You can avoid sugar and white flour. 
I don't think food causes eating disorders. I think that's kind of silly, you know? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to say it's not about the food, but the reason I added the chapter, it is too about the food. You can't cure yourself from an eating disorder unless you wrap around what you're doing with the food, unless you get back to a different relationship with food, you know? A, a peaceful a relationship that you feel good about. And I, and that's the thing. Again, you ask people, how do you feel about that? Do you have to hide it? Can you go out with your friend? You know, are you having to have two different personalities? You know, the one I do, I eat when I'm home or purge or whatever. And the one I present out there, it's getting them to be able to be their authentic self, you know, with people. Yeah. Did I answer that? You did. You did. Yeah. I'm going to thank you. I mean, I think both JD and I could sit and talk to you all yeah. day long, but sure. I want you to know that you're hijacked. I've hijacked your brain in mine. And so thank you. <laughs> the biggest gift. And if I'm anything like you as a clinician, oh, thank oh, you. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you. Wow. So has an hour gone by already? Uh, almost. We're almost there. Wow. <laughs> JD, take it. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, you've already answered this, but I want to see if you want to add anything else to it, which is, okay. you know, what is your idea of changing the narrative? You've said a lot about that, but is there one way you would wrap that up? Oh, my gosh. Well, a big one I have is not having an agenda when you go in with people. You know, you can't have an agenda. You have to, as I said, I think this is happening in the field in a lot of different ways, you know, about weight, about shape, about what people should or shouldn't eat. You know, we get, I, I think, a little bit too high and mighty about that. So I guess it would be when you go in with to treat somebody with an eating disorder, one, you have to be very individualized because you can't lump people in. This is a diagnostic category. So this and that, you know, mm -hmm. and two, you have to step out of the way yourself sometimes in terms of setting an agenda. And the third, and I, I would think this was already there, but I'm going to say it again. You have to hold out that people can get over this, that people are resilient enough, that they can be recovered. I have been saying this for so long. I'm surprised I still have to say it with so much evidence we have. But I guess mine's a three. Is that okay? It's a, a three part. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, it's awesome. That's really helpful. So now I want everybody to know where to find you, what you're doing, the books, everything. The coaching. You can find me at carolyncoston.com. Mm -hmm. That's my website. And it talks about, it lists the books that, that I've written. There are the book that Susie was talking about. The eight keys book has a workbook and that's really for clients, you know, to absorb and, you know, hopefully do with a therapist or, or a buddy or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but the other books are like, there's a book for parents called your dieting daughter, which I probably should redo at some point because it, it was, it's kind of dated because it was just for, um, <laughs> It was just for female, you know, parents of females at the time. Okay. But anyway, forget the books. I have a few books you can look at, but I think the exciting thing is I do consultations for people. Um, I, I take on a few clients, but only like two or three at a time because this coaching business really is what I'm doing. I'm taking people and training them to be eating disorder coaches so that we have some community support out there that has not existed in the eating disorder field. Like I said, there were there's sober coaches and life coaches and, you know, all, all different coaches, but it just wasn't happening in the eating disorder field. So particularly for people who have lived experience that 
they do need to be trained because this is a complex illness. And I especially train them not to go into the realm of therapy. They don't prescribe meal plans or treatment plans or diagnose, but they're there in the trenches with the person. So if someone's having a hard time because they can't go out for a meal at one of their favorite restaurants without binging and purging, the therapist isn't going to be doing that, but a coach goes with them has the meal with them, sits with them after time. If they get out of a treatment center, sober coaches go to alcoholics house and get rid of all the alcohol bottles that are there. There's nobody right now doing it for eating disorders, going in and getting rid of the laxatives, helping them set up their kitchen. So these coaches are doing a variety of things, starting from maybe working with an adolescent to help prevent going into a treatment center or someone who's coming out of a treatment center that needs follow-up or someone who's just working with a team and needs additional help, you know, for those in the moment, you know, or 24 hour texting kind of, yeah, you get the idea. That's yeah, what great. makes me. It's fabulous. It's fabulous. So, so is that all explained on the website? How do people find out? It's explained on the website. Yeah. And, and actually I have 62 certified coaches And if someone wants to be a coach, you don't have to be recovered to be a coach. It's just that about 98% of the people who apply are people who want to give back, you know. Um, But it's hopefully to have this community-based people out there helping, especially for populations who have less access to care. Because these are people that can really help. They're trained. It's a very rigorous program. It takes about a year to complete some, you can take as much as two years, but that's the end game. You have to be certified within two years. You have to do a supervised internship with me. I listen to every single session and give feedback and you you can't graduate with a certificate unless you've gone through the whole course and supervision with me. And then you're out there working with a team. You're working with a dietitian or therapist or whatever, but you're the one kind of in the trenches. And it's really, I think it's going to be a game changer. I really do. I'm already hearing from therapists and families and clients who it's it's making a difference in their recovery. So I'm kind of, I'm really excited about it. And also because it's right now, I have coaches in 14 countries. So Japan, Saudi Arabia, Belgium, South Africa, Canada, Australia, Czechoslovakia is my newest coach. Wow. <laughs> and you want to know, I'll say one other thing that's so fascinating. There's a lot of things that's different. And you pointed that out today about, about the underlying issues and respecting what's safe for one person versus another, or what's a body image different in one community versus another. But what is interesting is, the symptoms of the eating disorder. I was listening to a session the other day of a coach in Dubai talking to a a woman with anorexia in Pakistan. And I'm listening to the session. I'm thinking to myself on the level of coaching, because they don't get into the diagnosis and treatment, but on the level of coaching, just helping you deal with how you're dealing with your food and your body right now. There's a similarity in countries. There's a similarity in cultures that's kind of fascinating, you know, in terms of helping on that practical level, which I think is, yeah, it's a kind of a fascinating thing. So maybe I'll I'll write something about it soon because it's blowing my mind listening yeah. to things like that, you know. That's amazing. Give your website again, please. CarolynCoston.com. Awesome. Carolyn, such a pleasure to meet you. Susie has such amazing things to say about you. And now I understand why. Thank you so much for spending time with us and giving your Oh, thank you for having me. A lot. 
Yeah, yes, it's been it awesome. Hope you come back. And fast. Thank awesome. you. <laughs> yes, Thank it goes you. very fast. Thank you so much. Okay. okay. Anytime. Bye-bye. Bye. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller. J.D. and I want to thank our fabulous producers at I Am Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IamMusicGroup.com and the team will hit you back.